Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 181 of the Speaking Club podcast. I wanted to start the show this week with a quote from the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign. But stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, hey, great to be here with you again. I hope you're well and you're moving forward with your storytelling and speaking goals and most importantly, taking action. The world is waiting to hear your message. And if you think you can positively impact even just one person with it, then go out there and start sharing it. That's what my mission is, to help you change lives through sharing your message in a way that builds your authority, shifts beliefs and perspectives and creates customers and fans. Now, my guest today is also on a mission. Gareth Locke has been involved in high-risk work since he left school in 1989. He spent 25 years in the RAF in a variety of frontline operational research and development and systems engineering roles, which has given him quite a unique perspective. And in 2005, he fell in love with diving. He started his training and he's now an advanced diver. There's all sorts of funny things that he calls it, but let's just call it advanced diver so we can all be on the same page. And as he was learning and diving, Gareth couldn't help but notice issues within the industry that increased health risks and potential loss of life. So in 2016, he formed the Human Diver with the goal of bringing his operational human factors and systems thinking into diving safety. And his work over the years in diving safety and performance development has been all about telling context-rich stories that help people learn through adverse events. And over the past five years, he's trained more than 350 people face-to-face around the globe and taught nearly 2,000 people via online programs. And on top of that, he's also sold more than 4,000 copies of his book, Under Pressure, which also contains a load of stories of events to help people uh, learn something new. And more recently, he's produced a documentary called If Only, which tells the story of a fatal dive and how it might have been avoided. So in this show, he's sharing his own story and how he uses speaking and stories to inspire change in the world of diving. So, let's crack on with the interview. So, welcome to the Speaking Club, Gareth Locke. Hi, how are you doing, Sarah? It's really good to be here. Really, really pleased that we we hooked up and we can have this conversation. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be um, fascinating. I've been doing a bit of a deep dive, excuse the pun, 
into your stuff. And uh, and so I think it will be a, a good chat. So I'm going to kick off straight away and ask you this question. What's your mission and why does it matter? It's a really cliched bit, but it's, it's trying to create positive change in the diving industry. And the stupid mission is actually that the human diver, my own company, stops doing the work we do and the materials and the, the, the deliverables and the products that we develop get embedded into training agency materials. And, and that sort of links into why I do what I do. Uh, I spent 25 years in the Air Force operating on Hercules transport aircraft. I did a bunch of different career aspects and started looking at systems and systems engineering. And it was about the time that I got involved in diving as well. And I had a couple of close calls when I, in my early sort of diving career, sort of eight, 10 dives in, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was looking at how does aviation become as safe as it is and what can diving learn from this? And I really wanted to take the stuff that's made aviation safe, that's been taken into nuclear and healthcare and oil and gas and repackage it into the, the diving community so that they can then say, how do we learn from adverse events? How do we learn from success? And how do we do it in a, a positive, constructive way rather than a destructive, judgmental, litigious approach where actually the great quote from a, from a lady in, in the States called Nancy Leibson of blame is the enemy of safety. And as soon as we start blaming, people shut down the conversations and you don't find out ultimately how it made sense for somebody to do what they did. Nobody gets up in the morning, well, very few people, you know, will get up in the morning and say, today is a great day to die, to have an accident to injure somebody, to damage my equipment. Whatever they're doing must have made sense for them to do what they did, this term of local rationality. Afterwards, we can look back and go, oh, my God, how could you have been so stupid? It was obvious that that was going to be the outcome. But if it was that obvious, they wouldn't have done what they did. Nobody's got a crystal ball that's 100% accuracy, you know, 100% accurate for the future, so they're making best guesses based on previous experiences. And we have to look at that sense-making that goes on to say, how do we learn from their decision-making process? The outcome is almost uninteresting when it comes to learning. People run out of gas on a dive. They make a rapid ascent and they get something called a bends or they lose their buddy or they get left in a wreck or lost in a wreck. They didn't plan to do that. So let's look at that decision-making process. And there is a massive body of evidence out there from these high-risk industries. And all I've done, I've taken that, repackaged it, and said, here you go, divers, this is why you behave the way you do. And the irony is now I have people in high-risk industries who are coming onto my training programs and are taking the diving materials and then taking them back into their own industry. So I take stuff. You know, I stand on the shoulder of giants, I repackage this stuff, put it into diving, and they're now taking this and going, right, let's repackage it and put it back into their high-risk industries. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's brilliant. It's not just divers that, that benefit from the work that I do. That's brilliant. Well, there's a couple of things that I want to explore with you around that. The first thing I want to ask you is, why diving? Why did you pick diving? What is it about diving that you 
I'm imagining that it's something that you love to do yourself. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I learned to dive in, in 99. Um, I was on holiday. I can't sit in a beach. So I, I, I went and found something to do. I wanted to go sailing, couldn't, couldn't hire a boat. So oh, there's a dive school. I'll go and learn how to dive. And my first few dives were great. And then my final dive with the, the, with the instructor, we went deeper than we were supposed to go. We were limited to 18 metres. And the instructor said, look, there's nothing to see there. We'll go deeper. We'll go to 24 metres. So I'm filling my logbook in and I went to write 24. And the instructor went, no, 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 you can only write 18 because that's how, how deep we should have gone. Okay, fine. Didn't know anything better. Didn't dive for five years. Went to South Africa. Got my card. Here we go. I can dive. You know, no practice, no checkout dive, and off we went. It's like, oh, I really like this being in the water. I've always loved swimming as a kid. Then a month later, I go to San Diego with work. First day, I had some some great dives with a guide, all limited to eighteen meters. It's brilliant. Next day, there wasn't any shallower dives, and I managed to blag my way onto a deeper course dive. I signed extra waiver forms. Here, sign this. You're taking total responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I had a couple of close calls on that dive because of equipment failures. And I got back and I was like, I want to get into diving. I really, you know, I, I got involved with some people in the UK. And it was about that sort of same time that I was going through my master's in systems engineering, aerospace systems. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, there is something missing from diving that can really be applied in terms of creating a culture where we can talk about adverse events, where the analysis looks at not just something called the proximal causes, stuff that's right close in time and space to the people, why they had the accident. We need to look much further back than that. And there wasn't anything there. So I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of diving in terms of my experience and qualifications, about 850, 900 dives, um, I'm certified down to 75 meters on helium mixes. Um, I've dived literally all around the world and I love it. And, and it's this bit that says, how do we make diving safer? Because the current process, the current way of thinking is stupid diver, don't do what you do, be better. Well, it's not as simple as that. And the, the decisions we make now in the here and now are all based on previous experiences and the, the context in which we're operating. But it's really easy to say they should have done this, they would have done that, or I, you know, I would have done that, or they, they, they could have done this. Those counterfactuals don't help us learn. So diving is a, and I get into a bit of trouble with the agencies for this, diving is a high-risk sport because the consequence could be fatal. You know, nobody has gills. So if you run out of gas at depth, you're either going to go to your buddy and hopefully they're close enough that you can swim and then you can both make a, a controlled ascent to the surface or you make a, a, an ascent uh, from where you are to, to the top. But as you get more into sort of more technical diving or more high-risk diving, so diving inside wrecks, diving inside caves, diving deeper that you can't go straight to the surface, you have to decompress as you go up or you start using things called rebreathers which are complicated pieces of equipment that the failure modes are, are hidden. Uh, and so you've got to pay more attention to what's going on. It's about giving people the skills and the knowledge in diving that will make it safer. And fortunately, 
bad things don't happen very often. We don't have that many fatalities. We have a fair amount of near misses, but those don't get reported because we don't have a culture of, of learning. People hide. They don't want to get in trouble. They feel embarrassed. And yet, if we could create a culture that people talk about their near misses, then somebody else can go, you know what? I don't need to make that mistake myself. I can learn from somebody else. But that learning has to happen looking at the context, not just the don't run out of gas or don't make a rapid ascent. We've got to have that, that context-rich story that's there, which I know is, is your passion about stories. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing for me is I, as I watched the documentary, which we're going to talk about in a bit, and, and as I listened to you talk, it, it comes to my mind that actually, you know, I love the sea as well. I bodyboard and surf and paddleboard. I, I don't dive. I'm a bit scared of stingrays and whatnot and stuff that I've seen anyway. But anyway, that by the by, it, it is actually like going into space. You know, if you if you went up in a plane with a parachute, to me, the sea is is analogous to space in a yeah. lot of ways. We don't we can't survive in space without oxygen yeah, exactly. it feels mm. like we are more cavalier about this type of thing than we would be about going out into space and is that fair in terms of the way the perception of it it is and, and a lot of that and again this is where the sort of frustrations come in the way we make our decisions are based on those previous experiences and those experiences are based on the marketing so you know diving is marketed as a sport for all in all environments, and anybody can do it, and it's fantastic. And it is. You know, you go underwater and you see, you know, my passion is is wreck diving. Uh, other people, it's about big fish and or even tiny little seahorses or nudibranchs, you know, little sea slugs. But it is a very alien environment. And, and it's non-survivable non when things go wrong. And to a certain extent, space travel is incredibly safe. The consequences are catastrophic when it goes wrong. And, and that's the other thing that sort of diving needs to, you know, gets across is that diving, when you are well-equipped, well-trained, got the right mindset, then actually it's a very safe sport. And that's how it's marketed. Um, so the, the risk perception is based on how things are marketed. Space is perceived as really risky because we see stuff blowing up all the time. Um, but we look at what's involved. It's incredible. Uh, the engineering and the, the effort that goes into it. Um, so, and, and interestingly, NASA uses something called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which is a massive swimming pool um, where they train astronauts in a submerged environment. So they put them in their spacesuits, they make them neutrally buoyant, so they're just hovering. And then they have divers around them who are providing support and safety if need be. So that analogy of space and water is, is, is so true. And in fact, you know, I've got a, a conference running in September and one of my speakers is a, I'm going to say a trainee astronaut. And where she went to do some of this sort of selection process was all in a neutral buoyancy lab. Um, and she said that those early astronauts the successful ones were the ones that understood um, being neutral in the water. So they were divers and they, they realized that you can't push off things because it's not there. Or if you do push off something, you carry on until you hit something else because you are, you know, you're neutral. So yeah, it's a great, a great parallel or analogy there. Interesting. And now, so you were in the Air Force, you left 
the Air Force. You you right. did your engineering masters, and then you you start diving, and then you decide, right, I am going to do this. Yeah. So when was that? And yeah. So so I left the flying in two thousand and four. I did a masters in two thousand four, two thousand five. I then went into a series of aviation related jobs. So one was trials, one was research and development, one was systems engineering. I left that in February 15, and I'd I'd started getting some of this knowledge into the diving community about that sort of stage, end of, well, 2011, 10, 10, 11, starting to give presentations and things. When I left the Air Force, I didn't want to go into defense. I wanted to carry on doing some of this human factors work. And I, I went into the oil and gas industry, and I spent eight months working out in Qatar, uh, on the oil rigs, so I delivered a couple of days of training, the same sort of stuff that I delivered to divings, divers, and then I'd do seven days of coaching. And unfortunately, the end of 14, start of 15, is where the bottom fell out of the oil market. So training for you know one of the first things to go. And then I was trying to get work in healthcare or other high-risk industry work, and it just wasn't happening. And I'm I'm a terrible salesperson because I'm I'm not motivated by money and results. I'm, I'm motivated by passing on knowledge to others. And so through 2015, it was really hard. Like, what am I doing? And I, I, I wanted to, you know, how do I put this into diving? And I was looking for a way because people were not going to sit in a classroom and listen to this stuff. I had to find a way of making it engaging. And at the end of 2015, I came across a a software tool called Gemisim, which is a computer-based simulation designed for teams of four or five people. It creates a very stressful environment. Even though it's a game, you can wind people up really easily because of the problems they have to solve. And I used this as the vehicle to deliver the training. So in January 2016, I ran a first pilot class. And then I've run, oh, I don't know how many classes since then, about 350, 400 people now I've trained face-to-face -face using this system. And then I started to get on, you know, people say, well, there's a lot of information. Why don't you give us some pre-course information? So I gave them that and I went, this could also be a standalone product to get people interested in it. So realistically, it started January 16. And, and the reason it happened is because of a, a, a lovely lady called Yashin Nicholson at, uh, so used to be in, I think, Business West in Swindon. Well, she's at the Growth Hub now, but her last job, I went there for some coaching to look at my sort of first part of my business, human in the system, which was the non-diving bit. And we sat there and she said, right, tell me about human in the system. And, uh, and I just go about diving. <laughs> human in the system, yeah. And then she said, stop talking about human in the system. Stop talking about the non-diving stuff. Tell me about the human diver. And I went, this is what I've done. These are how many people have trained. And, da, da, da. and she went, you've got a business. You've just got to market it. You, you don't have the capacity to build two businesses at the same time. So your passion is in diving. Focus on that. And we end up having some coaching goals. And, and I, I must say, thanks to Yashin for giving me a kick up the proverbial to say, focus on that. And that really when, is when I focused on how do I make this happen? What does what does the um, the community need? Uh, and then interestingly, what do I need to understand to be able to market? Because anybody who's been involved in any marketing program, they'll talk about your ideal client avatar or, or your, your ideal customer. And the problem is I am not my ideal client. 
And I had to work out what it was that they needed. So I've done you know, a fair amount of marketing training and shifted my approach to say, what is it they need, not what do I think they need? And it's really hard to do that, to have that mind shift, but it's, it's paid dividends. And at the same time of growing the business, um, writing a book, putting a documentary out there, going on webinars and talking about the problems that divers face and getting them to look at the context, the story, not just the didn't pay attention, didn't communicate clearly, didn't lead, was poor teamwork, you know, rubbish decisions. Those are outcomes. They, you know, we can tell what happened. What we have to do is develop the knowledge that leads up to that so that they, they make better decisions ultimately. That's brilliant. And there's a lot that I would like to unpack there. Yeah, go so for it. Sorry, I rabbit. No, 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 no. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. A lot of people are scared to niche down. You know, we talked about this in pre-show, but you know, you've managed to combine your passion with your purpose. And there's a few people that are coming down the pipeline in the podcast, guests that have managed to do that. And I admire that so much because it's scary mm. to specialize. But I think if you're passionate about it and you go all in, which clearly you did, you know, once you had that nudge, yeah. um, it's worthwhile. And it, and it becomes less of a treadmill because you're doing something that you love anyway. So that, that's one thing I want to say. And the other thing that I think you mentioned, which I think is really important for people to take away as well. One of the things that I always coach people, whether it's speaking or, or on the story of marketing side of it, is that you have to, the person who articulates the problem best wins. And you need to become the evangelizer of the problem because as mm. soon as you become synonymous with the problem, they then come to you for the solution. Is that something that you've experienced? Yes, it, it is. And I've changed how I, I'm going to say market myself or get the message out there. And there's a phrase I use and it's, and I use it to try and get stories out of people. Human factors, which is how we, interact with a system, with other people, with technology, with books, and all sorts of things like that. Human factors is, is general in nature and specific in application. So I can talk about how teams develop, how leadership works, how decisions are made, communications, effective communications happens. But that doesn't mean anything to anybody individually because you go, yeah, yeah, I know about that. And, I, and what I say then is give me a problem or an issue that you've got and I will talk through how human factors is applied to that. Because there are millions of permutations out there. It was one of my ex-students said, the problem with human factors in diving is human factors. There are so many biases that we operate with and, and all the time. And we sit there and go, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Well, that doesn't apply because they're different to me. And so we have all of these things that say, I'm different. It's not the same. And then when we talk about, you know, something that's happened on a dive or if they're on a, you know, instructor and they're teaching a class and something comes up and I went, okay, so why do you think that happened? Uh, I don't know, actually. Right. So let's break it down and we'll talk about why the student behaved the way they did or why you behaved the way they did, why they made those decisions. Oh, all right. So that's what human factors is about. Yes. And it is such a difficult thing to get across, but the only way to do it is to engage with people. And then those little stories can then go into blog articles or the documentary or the book. Um, all of those help shape people's perceptions of what Human Factors is about. And I'm in a really, really lucky position that 
I am the only person teaching this. Um, there might be, you know, in the diving domain, there are little pockets in um, a couple of the militaries that are doing it, but in the main, nobody is doing it. So I'm, I'm blazing that trail. So I'm, I have huge opportunities, and at the same time, I have huge barriers because people are sitting there going, "Well, that's not relevant to me. Why do I care about that?" Because they haven't made that leap between how they perform is not just about the skills they've learned on a diving training class about buoyancy or moving through the water or how to put a, a marker buoy up or how to lay line in a cave, that there are other things that are involved. And it's about gradually getting greater impetus. And to your point, people come to me now and say, or they'll post on social media, they'll tag me on Facebook and say, Gareth, you might want to look at this. And it's like, it's great to have that change. And that's taken 10 years of, of going. And, and I know it's it's beyond my lifetime as to where this is. And that's my other piece is I don't care that this will go beyond where I am. That's that's my passion is to create uh, Simon Sinek's talking about the infinite game. This is an infinite game. There, there are no winners in this. It's about improving things for the for the wider audience, the global diving community. Oh, I love that. It's look, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to make a business, you know, make money at doing what they love. But when you are also driven by a mission that is bigger than you and you know, and you want to change the world, not in like you know, it's really easy to be cliche and say, I want to change the world. But if you, you know, there's something specific you want to make a difference in. And, and I would imagine that you've already saved lives uh, through the work that you've done. And that can't, must be so, that's worth more than money. Money's oh, important because okay. it enables us to do the things that, you know, to do this, but that's yeah. got to be worth more to you than any, any sort of money. You know, in terms of the feedback being better than money, totally. You know, when I've had people email me and say, here's a story where I changed my decision-making based on something I heard you say in a webinar or what I read in a book or the documentary, that is huge to me because you sit there and go, I can make a change. And I'm running a 10-week course at the moment. And one of my students last week, which was the introduction piece, I, I talked about, you know, that this is the change that I'm trying to, that I'd like to get happen. And this diet, this, this person said, there are millions, literally millions of divers out there and they're operating through different agencies, dive centers. You're one person. How are you going to, how are you going to create that change that you're talking about? And so, well, for a start, I've got 20 of you on the class. That's 20 more people that I didn't have. And I recounted a story which I don't know if you've heard before, Sarah, of, of a little boy who's walking on the, the, the shore and there's, the sea is washing these starfish up onto the beach. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the boy's picking this up and throwing it into the sea, he bends down, picks another one up. And this old guy comes up and said, what are you doing? You know, th there's hundreds, thousands of starfish here. You can't save them all. And he went, I only need to save one of them at a time. And that's it. And that's where I'm sort of coming from is, you know, I've now got five instructors who are delivering materials for me around the world. I've got four more who are in training and I'm going to start four more, five more in September because I realize that I have my network and it, it reaches a certain amount. Those people are in my network, but they then have networks that are bigger. And 
it's about having a grassroots approach bottom up because at an agency level, an organizational level, this doesn't add value. You know, the training I deliver doesn't add direct value to their bottom line because they make money. You know, as a training agency, they're there to make money from delivering training. Well, their, their, their students don't know any better. So why would they offer something that would cost them something to develop and, and uh, move on from there? So what I'm hoping is that there might be some people at the top who get this and we can start trickling down. But also when we start influencing instructors, instructor trainers within the organizations, and then they create the change inside and say, you know what, this is important. We can put some together some training materials. And it's already happened in at least one of the training agencies that's out there. They've gone, this is value. Let's let's add it. And, and it's, yeah, it's a long journey. So, you know, does, does it create, when, when stuff happens, totally. That's brilliant. And I, you know, keep on going, obviously. And we've talked about stories and, you know, you've mentioned stories a lot. And my whole thing is that you have to get people to emotionally buy in before they can logically buy in. Mm. And the way that you do that is through telling a story ideally about one person because that's where the emotional impact comes in because we have that vicarious uh we're able to live vicariously through them how many stories you know is it peppered throughout all of the material through the courses that you do and the talks that you do it's totally the case uh and actually you know any of the, the the training that i deliver starts with a story and shows the value of you know, improve communication or better decision-making or increase situational awareness or teamwork. And invariably, it's a story of failure to, to get people's attention. But it's important to draw the parallels with their own diving. And in fact, when I'm in a situation where people might be resistant to a story coming in, because of this thing called distancing through differencing, where you sit there and go, I'm different to that person. It doesn't apply to me. Um, because they, they can't draw that, that link. I start with a really simple story. And it might be about walking out the front door and, and hearing the door go click. And you go, oh, I haven't got my keys. And I've forgotten something. And, and you wouldn't remember that you'd forgotten the keys until there was a trigger point. Now, that might be you get to the car and you realize you haven't got the keys. Or in this case, it's the, the audible click. Now, you weren't paying attention to that. You know, we weren't looking out for that or hearing out for that click. But there is a dink, and it triggers a memory, and you go, oh, I know what that means. Oh, I haven't got the keys. So what I do is I try to tell stories that they can relate to easily in their normal life because it's non-confrontational and it's not judgmental about their own professional, you know, if I work in high-risk industries, might be surgeons, might be construction workers in the diving industry. It's not about their diving skills because there's a huge amount of ego uh, and protectionism that happens. But if I can talk about a normal failure and explain how that happens, and then I bridge or segue into a diving story and say, right, and this is what happened here. Oh, right. So that's how the brain works. Yes. Right. So now we've got this, then we can start talking about how do we improve and prevent those things from happening. Um, and then it's sticky. It, it helps, you know, and, and you need to have sticky stories. 
to, to get people thinking about things. So yeah. stories are through everything and they allow, you know, talk about the book, there's 30 plus stories in the book. And the idea was that, you know, because nobody's going to read a theory book about human factors, but they everybody loves a terrible story, you know, a disaster story. And the idea was I, I wrote to nearly 60 people. I got about 40 stories back and they were all around the 1,000, 1,500 word mark, which is what I asked them to be. And I asked them to tell context-rich stories. How did it make sense for them to do what they did and end up in the situation they were? And then what I did was I then plugged the theory into the story that said, right, you know, when they were going down this cave and they got distracted, well, this is how the attention system works. Um, and so people were able to learn the theory at the same time as, as, as reading a, a story uh, about what happened. Brilliant. And, and I love that. And I think for anyone listening, the, the, the way that Gareth introduced that story is a universal story. And there's a podcast on universal, how to make your stories universal and universal and framing and all sorts of things. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Now, one story that you have created, which is really sad, but um, I think highlights kind of that perfect storm that you're talking about is the documentary that you were you is that all you produced that was, directed yeah, that was all me. so if only and people can go and check it out on your website and we'll put a link obviously to that so how did that come about and was that intentional in that you think this is going to uh, this is going to open the door open people's eyes up and build awareness quicker than anything else that you can do is was that part of it uh, to a certain extent so how it happened uh, in May uh, 2018, a diver was undertaking a training course in Hawaii. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the way that they configured their equipment, their oxygen cylinder wasn't turned on. They jumped off the back of the boat. Their breathing loop that they were breathing went hypoxic, so it got levels of oxygen which were not sustainable for life. They passed out and drowned and sank. They recovered the body. Um, now, his wife was five months pregnant at the stage. And it was a little while later that, so social media reported this event uh, and it was just like, oh, what's going on? And it, and it does, you know, there's, there's these things appear and people start blaming and speculating what had happened. And about three months later, shortly after um, the, the youngest child was born, Ashley, who's the widow, posted uh, an account of what happened. Here's the analysis of the diving equipment, which the manufacturer had looked at, and this is what we think happened. And I looked at this and went, wow, this is incredible. This is, this is somebody who's been hugely, you know, massively brave about exposing what had happened and talked about the fact that her husband had made some mistakes, that he was fallible. Normally what happens in the States is the lawyers get involved and, and, and litigation happens. And this didn't. And I was like, okay, this is, this is interesting. And, and through a mutual contact over the next sort of 12 months, I got introduced to Ashley. And I, I shared a video from somebody who's been instrumental in changing human factors in healthcare, something called Martin Bromley, and a, uh, a documentary called Just a Routine Operation, which is only, I think it's about 12 or 13 minutes long. And it talks about how his wife died during a routine operation. They'd put her on general anaesthetic, they couldn't get a tube down her airway, 
and they were struggling for ages. And it was something like 20 minutes before they decided, oh, we better wake her up, give her some drugs to, to wake her up. But her blood oxygen levels were so low that she was brain damaged by this stage. And I think it was three days later, they Martin authorized the, the life support machine to be turned off. And he went to the hospital and said, okay, can, can you let me know what happened? And they said, well, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like, what do you mean it's just one of those things? You know, my background, he's a, a commercial pilot. He said, look, this is not how it works. And, and it took a long time to understand what had happened. And there were lots of human factors, non-technical skills issues, like uh, focusing on what was going on, authority gradients. The nurses would had come into the, the room and said, is everything okay? Can we, you know, prepare an emergency bed? No, 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 it's all, we've got it all, you know, under control. And so there were numerous factors here. And that really was the inspiration for If Only. So when Ashley put her account out there, it was like, there's maybe an opportunity here because this is somebody who's very different to what normally happens. So eventually we got exchanging information back and forth and, and Ashley was like, yeah, I'm on side with this. I want other people to learn and I don't want Brian's death to have been, you know, a total loss. I, I want to be able to create change. So we then said, okay, can we get hold of the diving team who were involved? And she still kept in contact. So in 2019, we flew out to Hawaii and did a reenactment. We did some face-to-camera work. All of the their face-to-camera was basically free talking. The stuff that I wrote as the analysis was, you know, I scripted because I wanted to get it right. Mm. And I had, I think, five and a half hours worth of video to reduce to 34 minutes. So all of the editing, in terms of chunking up, and and the story that was told was me. I then gave it to JP Bresser, who's a colleague of mine in the Netherlands. He did the filming, and then he did all of the the post-production work and making sure, because I I sent him a whole bunch of sliced-up videos, and he looked at us and went, what? How am I supposed to make this work? And I went, you're the, you know, you're the master, JP, crack on. And he did a fantastic job. Um, and it, it is, it was a very emotional time. It's very, also very awkward. It's the first time that I've been involved in video work or any, any interview type work where people are breaking down in tears because their friend died. Um, and, and you sit in there going, and JP's like, no, just let them cry. That's what they need to do. And, and feeling very awkward when you're intruding on somebody's personal grief. But, you know, so the, the, the idea really was, and, and working with Ashley and the dive team, was to create a, a change in mindset that says accidents don't just happen because of some obvious smack-you-in-the-face event. They happen as, as a, a convergence of multiple factors, which each of on their own wouldn't have been an issue. But because you're now stacking these things up, the capacity to manage that safely just is exceeded. Uh, and unfortunately, it cost Brian his life uh, on that day. And I'm, it's been used by a, a US power company. They, they used it as their safety roadshow video this year, and it went out to 5,500 workers. So we I modified a little bit of the analysis piece slightly differently for their environment, but it, to all intents and purposes, it was the same film. Uh, and the same analysis, it was just the drawing the parallels with their work. And it's had something like 25,000 views uh, via Vimeo and the uh, the website, the Human Diver website. Um, and I know people who use it. And, and the goal was 
for instructors and dive centers to use it as part of training materials to say, this is what the reality is. It's very difficult to spot these things in real time unless you're looking for them. And the idea of the video was to show people what those conditions the, that lead to, you know, error-producing conditions that lead to serious events occurring. Yeah, it's, it is powerful. I think for me, one of the sort of most emotional moments was was when she recalled how the night before he went on that dive, he said, look, this is all going wrong and it's taking a toll and we're having to change our plans and I need to put you first as a family. And she was a supportive wife and said, no, you want to do this, go and do it. And that must have been, you know, with hindsight, she... Oh. I bet she beats herself up. If only I'd have said, no, no, we need to come first. It would have saved his life or do it later. Yeah. It is really definitely worth watching. And as, and it's great that you're being able to transplant it into other things because that, that it is, you know, that perfect storm coming together. You know, you can have it in all sorts of different places. So it's a really good job. Now, one thing that came up in that video, and it just for me is curious because I, I, I like to find stuff out, um, what is a just culture? You mentioned it a lot of times. Mm. Have I got it right? Just that yes, yes, it is. Yeah. So a just culture came about in the early 1990s. And it's part of a wider concept of a safety culture. And it's this recognition that people are fallible. They will make mistakes. And we need to be able to encourage the storytelling that allows us to understand that. But at the same time, there is a line where we end up having unacceptable behaviors and that could be willful willful negligence uh, sabotage uh, or violations for personal gain now that line between acceptable and unacceptable is often drawn it's not where the line is drawn it's who draws it so it's often drawn by lawyers um, and, and maybe the police you know and when it looks at why did people do something oh well, because they were there to break the rules and when you start looking deeper than this, if you're in an organization, often people break rules for organizational benefit. So you haven't been given enough time or enough resource or enough information to get the job done, but you know the goal has to be achieved. So you're breaking rules for organizational benefit. Punishing somebody for organizational benefit, you know, situation violations is not going to help things because what happens now is you drive those behaviors underground because people then don't find out what's going on. So a just culture is allowing people, I'm going to say allow people to make mistakes, but allow people to talk about what goes on in reality, a concept called work as done compared to work as imagined, which is the stuff that gets written down. So if you've got a just culture, I can go to you, you know, Sarah, you work in a construction site. And you've got a whole bunch of rules and regulations to, to operate to. Um, but you know that you can't actually get your job done if I follow those to the letter of the law because I've got time constraints or I don't have enough money. So in a just culture, I can come to you and say, Sarah, tell me what you really do. How do you get your job done? How do you maintain safety despite all these constraints that are in place? So if you've got a just culture in place, you'll tell me, you know what, I cut these corners here, Gareth, because I'm actually managing this risk here by doing this differently, but I'm still achieving the goals. And you know what, I'm saving us time and money. If we don't have a just culture, and I go to you, Sarah, how do, I, how do you do your job? 
well, here, this is what it says in the book. And these are, and, you know, it's like, and and the problem is management then go away and think, well, everything's hunky-dory because I haven't had any accidents and my team are following the documents and the rules and the regulations. Everything's good until you have an accident. And then you go, well, Sarah, you weren't following the rules. And you go, yeah, but I didn't actually have the time or the money or the resources or anything to get the job done. And you were rewarding me for positive outcomes. So of course I'm going to do that. And you haven't asked the question about what's going on. So a just culture is this recognition that we will make mistakes. And those mistakes aren't just in the here and the now. They're part of that context-rich story that's made sense for me to do what I want to do. And if we want to improve safety, we have to understand the context. And that's why aviation is as safe as it is because they have a just culture in place in the majority of the globe they do because pilots will find ways around doing things or something will go wrong and they're able to tell a story to say this is the situation I faced this is how I solved the problem it ended up as something going wrong but now we can look back and say what can we do to change the conditions rather than just pay more attention you know, don't make a mistake. It's like, really? So, and it's it's a huge thing. And, you know, in aviation, it's there. In nuclear, it's there. In healthcare, it's getting there because of the work that Martin Bromley's done and setting up the Health Safety Investigation Board that look at healthcare events, adverse events. And it's an independent body because if you don't have any independence, you've got a vested interest in making sure that you protect you know, as, as an NHS trust that would investigate an, an accident in their own uh, environment, well, they're not likely to go and identify all the organisational failings because that's them. So having an, you know, an independent body is, is advantageous. So it can be done at a sort of very high level. What I'm trying to do within the diving community is it, it's not going to happen at a global level. It probably won't happen at a national level, but it can certainly happen at a team level or a, an organization or a, a group or a, a Facebook group or something like that, where people can start to look at how does it make sense for people to do what they do and not be, which is a human reaction, jump straight into the blame and the judgment bit of, oh God, that was obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious because otherwise they wouldn't have done it. Um, yeah. It's really difficult to get people to think differently about this. But once they've seen it, you can't unsee it and it and it's great that that's another feeling that i've you know when people come to me it's like oh i can't look at these things without looking at it differently it's like yes <laughs> one more starfish i've saved that starfish move on and then they will start telling the story uh, outwards as well so that's brilliant and i was waiting for you to say if you hadn't said it which was which brought us back to where you started which was about the blame culture so that's nice to uh, to round that stuff off now, this is the speaking club. So I want to ask you, how important has speaking been to building your brand authority and business? Hugely. Despite social media, which, which provides a, a global reach, it's very difficult to get across the emotion that you can hear in my voice now and the passion mm. that's there. Um, my, my speaking, I suppose my speaking career started for, in the diving side in 2010 at a conference called Eurotech, which was a technical diving conference held in Birmingham. And I had five people in my 
audience the first time. And the rooms were set up for about 150 people. So I had five people sitting at the front and two of those were my mates who were there to give me some moral support. Um, it's like, yeah, we've got to, you know, it's your first talk we're going to do there. Um, and then gradually people go, oh, actually, he's got something interesting to say. And delivering it and, and you know, the, the way of structuring those stories, you know, the universal story of, of getting people interested in this sort of thing and draw the parallels, the analogies with what they do. And now I'm running, well, will be a monthly series for one of the uh, major sort of safety organizations. Um, I run a fortnightly webinar that is free. Uh, and I'll get, well, the last two that I ran, I had 350 people register and 160 attend the first one, and then about 250 and about 105. Um, and, and that's great because then they, and then there'll be other people sign up, but speaking is, is really important to get that across, to get the emotion across and to do it authentically. Um, th there's nothing worse than hearing a slide reader, um, oh, talking yes. about stuff and even a, you know, this sort of free flow is fantastic. I love it because it's the questions that are there. When you hear somebody read a script, uh, in a in a presentation, it's like this is terrible. And even you know, I use a for my courses, I use a teleprompt. But I'm so used to writing how I speak, so I can just have this um, oh, what do you call it, flow of consciousness, and I'll just do stuff, and then I'll do it to camera, and it does sound much more authentic. And another tip, which I don't know whether or not you've noticed, I'm standing. Um, one of the things that I picked up from one of the early sets of webinars I did was the difference between engaging with an audience when you're sat down compared to when you stand up. So when lockdown happened last March, I went and got a sit-stand desk and, and it made a huge difference to, to how I engage with, with an audience. So top tip, if you're going to present, do it while you're standing up. Don't sit down. Absolutely. There's some great stuff there. And and so I guess I, one final question on, on this is how do you, and, it, and is this, do you actually consciously think about this or maybe you did at the start and you don't have to, have to so much these days, but how do you get the balance right between educating and engaging? Because without the engagement, you can't do the education piece, but you've got to have a bit of substance in there yeah. as well. So how, how do you manage that? Um, it, it was hard to start with, I, but I got some good feedback from people. It's like, go and watch. There's a guy called Professor Simon Mitchell, who's a, a he's an anesthetist and a hyperbaric doctor. Great presentation, great delivery. And it's like, what is it that Simon does? And it's about breaking things up. It's about having different topics or styles of topics. So it might be about video. It might be about a picture. It might be about some problem solving. And to be honest, I haven't found it difficult moving to the, the, the online delivery framework in, in terms of that. Uh, there's bits that I've had to do, but it, it's about how do, you know, I'll prove maybe 10, 15 minute chunks um, while I'll talk about a topic. I'll get people to what their key takeaway. So using the chat window in Zoom, where I'll take a break and say, right, what was your key takeaway from that? And that provides me some feedback because if their key takeaway is not the message that I wanted to get across, I've failed. You know, I own the communication here. And so that feedback is, is critical. 
Um, and so it is about coming up with thinking about things differently. And if anybody follows me on LinkedIn, you'll see that I will take sort of images and then people go, what's that about? And I'll put a little bit of prose that's associated with that to get people to think about things differently. So always, always get people to look at the world differently. It's very, and then because it's different, they'll go, oh, what's that? And, you know, I've, I've got I don't know, about five and a half thousand people on, on LinkedIn as connections and they bring all sorts of different ideas, too. So, you know, don't be, you know, I'm going to say be shameless about that. That's a great idea. I'll build that into mine. So my my experience of how to do stuff is based on thousands of previous engagements. And what worked for me is likely to work for my audience because that's why they're my audience. And if it triggers my thought process, I might get other people interested in it as well. Lovely. That's brilliant. Smashing. Well, we're going to um, talk about how people can find out more about you in a little bit. But before that, I have some standard questions that I ask all the guests. Um, so um, the first one is, and we may have covered it, but what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? It allows me to get ideas across. And speaking with engagement so actually i can talk that's great it allows me to express the passion the emotion about getting stuff across i then have an opportunity to answer a question and that is twofold one it helps me understand what the problems are on the other side but also helps me further the education because as i said human factors in general in nature and specific in application and if i can get one starfish saved that works Brilliant, cool. And Gareth, have you had a gig where you were like, oh no, that was awful. I just want to wipe that one from the memory. Has that ever happened? Um, I think probably my first one was, was with only five people. And, and that's really hard. It wasn't as bad as another person who only had me in the audience. And I promised to go and watch this guy present. And he was up against Simon Mitchell. You know, that's the problem when you go to conferences. It's like, oh, those everybody goes to those. So I'd already seen Simon talk about what he was doing. So I just sat and we had basically a one-to-one -one conversation for this presentation. So I, I know what it can be like. Um, and I, if people are in that situation, I'll support them because I know it feels rubbish. But I haven't had uh, a stand. I know you do stand up. Uh, I haven't had been on the situation where you've just told this joke and everybody's gone. <laughs> the tumbleweed blows across the, the environment so now i fortunately haven't been in that situation good uh, good so, yeah, it's good no worries cool okay what's the book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why oh i'll probably say it, it's a, a, a non-fiction one is uh, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow of, of the ability to look at the world differently and why we make the decisions we do. It, it's not an easy read, but it's, you know, it, it suits my, my view of the world. And, and the reason is, yeah, it changed my perspective and, and the need to slow down, but perversely that's incredibly difficult to do. And to slow down, we have to slow down to engage the slower part of our brains, which might appear a bit sort of counterintuitive, but, you know, we're operating really quick all the time and we have to put the brakes on and then think logically about stuff. And it's, it's not natural to, to slow down. And, and as from what I recall about that, 
it's in order to access the deep work and the deep thinking. Yeah, that, totally. that, that is a gateway to that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, totally. And so, you know, there's this phrase that assumptions make an ass out of you and me. And the irony is that assumptions make the world go around at the pace it does. We can't not have assumptions because we don't have enough mental energy or time to go into that deep logical piece. So we, we, we make educated guesses all the time. What we have to do is recognize when's the point that this isn't a good assumption, you know, not a good time to make an assumption. How do we validate that? How do we make sure that my real knowledge applies to this and we slow right down? Uh, and that cool. comes with the experience over time, unfortunately. Brilliant. Well, put a link in the show notes to that book as well. Okay, penultimate one. Uh, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Challenge your assumptions. So to, to that, and, and I've just done some work with, with uh, an organization looking at something called Red Team Thinking, of when you are an individual, you know, as an entrepreneur, and you're developing, and you're passionate about your business, um, you get blinded by what's out there. And write down all of the assumptions. So you've got facts, and then you've got assumptions. Facts are stuff you can put your hands on and say, that is true or false. Everything else is an assumption. Look at those assumptions, write them down and say, how do I validate those? And what would happen if that assumption didn't come true? And entrepreneurs are incredibly self-confident in that. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Oh my God. No, it's not. All those clients that I said I was going to get, and I knew that I was going to get, they haven't arrived. Now what? Mm. That changed things. And it's much better to to validate those assumptions and then come up with a plan B, a plan C, a plan D before you get to the timeline and go, oh, it didn't arrive. Now what do I do? So, yeah. Cool. I like that. Excellent. And the last question. Uh, if you could have any mentor, they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Probably Gary Klein. So Gary Klein is a researcher that looks at something called naturalistic decision-making and as to how we make decisions in the here and the now based on our previous experiences. And, and he's written a fantastic amount that's out there. I really like his work and it lines up with so much I do in terms of my diving work. So yeah, I'll probably say Gary Klein just because I, I enjoy that sort of stuff and I'm a terrible business person. So um. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. I think you're being modest there. Good. Listen, Gareth, thank you so, so much for sharing. It's been really interesting talking to you and I've I've learned a lot uh, and I'm sure it's opened up people's eyes. Uh, I hope, I'm sure we'll have some divers listening. So hopefully that if, you know, if nothing else, some of those guys will be asking yeah. some questions. Um, now, how, where's the best place for people to go to find out more about you, perhaps to get to work with you? Um, where should they go? Well, the best link is uh, The Human Diver. So www.thehumandiver.com. Um, and that has is, is my go-to website, and it's got a link to the book Under Pressure. It's got a link to the documentary, If Only. Um, if you're on Facebook and you want to learn about this stuff, just Google Human Factors in Diving. I've got a group there which has got about 7,000 members in it now. Um, and in terms of contact, gareth.lock at thehumandiver.com will find me. I'm on LinkedIn. 
Um, you can just search me there as well. So uh, oh. I have a fair amount of a social media presence. Brilliant. And I'll put the links in the show notes to all of that stuff as well. Now, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you think you haven't said that you need to say in order to call this complete? Not from what I want to say, other than keep tell stories. Look at the context. You know, I'm going to reinforce it again. When you tell a story, look at the context and how it made sense for people to do what they did. And you will be surprised. And if you can tell a story or if you do some digging and you can then tell the story that says, now I would make the same decision they did, you have truly understood the story that was going through the other person's head at that time. If you get to the end of trying to dig and trying to understand that story, you go, I still don't understand. You haven't truly understood the other person's story. I love that. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And best of luck with everything. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Sarah. And I I love it. So thank you and keep going with your uh, storytelling. Thank you. I hope that's given you inspiration in quite a few ways. I know it did to me. Firstly, around how you can use stories in any business and context to educate, engage and inspire. And also, I love the fact that these tragedies aren't being forgotten. And Gareth is weaving them together with his training to do good and save lives. As ever, if anything Gareth said resonated with you, then do go and check out his stuff. All the links are in the show notes. And of course, he would love it if you went to connect with him on LinkedIn and and shared uh, the impact that he had on you. So if you want to use speaking to make a positive impact in the world, but if you're not sure where to start or you feel your message isn't connecting and engaging with your audience or you want to practice your speaking then why not come and try out the Speaking Club Live? It's my weekly coaching group and it's getting fabulous results for the coaches, consultants, authors and business owners who are members. And you can find out more and join, try it for a month, at saraharcher.co.uk slash club. Uh, if If you're a fan of the show, if you get value from it, don't forget to go and leave a quick rating or review. And you can do that really easily over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. And it means a lot to me. I do read everyone and it's lovely to get your feedback. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you again for joining me. I'll be back soon to share some more speaking tools, tips and insights. But in the meantime, don't you forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week, we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking, from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots, and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humor, and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery, and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club 
Now, 